Welcome to the Pink Smoke Podcast, the official podcast of thepinksmoke.com, co-founded by myself, John Cribbs, and Mr. Christopher Funderburg. We're here today with our very good friend, Pink Moke Third Mike. Pink Peak Moke. Pink Moke. Pink Moke. <laughs> third Mike of the Pink Moke and also Pinland Empire creator, Mr. Marcus Penn. How are you doing today, sir? Good, good. Chilling. Just excited to talk about this movie that I finally got a chance to see about a month ago or so. Um, oh, you just saw it for the first time. Yeah, it was because thanks to Criterion, it did the rounds a couple of years ago. I think mainly just New York City and Chicago. Of course, Chicago, because that's like where the movie's based out of. But mm-hmm. it did the repertoire, repertory theater kind of tour. Um, but I knew about it for a while because years ago I did a thing on Pill and Empire, the cinema of Bill Duke. Um, and naturally, when I started, I did, I did the basic Google, IMDb, Wikipedia thing. And then this movie came up and I was like, oh, I didn't even know about this. Like, I had no idea when I you know, think about his movies. It starts with um, a rage in Harlem. Yeah. And I was yeah. like, I didn't think he did anything before that. And then I couldn't find it. And then, of course, you know, over time, it, it, it went to film form in New York City. And I forgot the name of the theater in Chicago that played it around the same time, too, in like 2017 or 2018. So, John, why don't you, you mean- say uh, a little bit about what we're talking about rather than jumping in without even <laughs> saying the title of it? Right. By, him, by him, Marcus means uh, Bill Duke. And the movie is his first feature film, The Killing Floor. And it's funny because certainly I've heard of movies that, you know, aren't part of the kind of collective consciousness. But this one, reading his book, he doesn't even mention it in his book. You know, it's like it's right. underrated even by the man who made it its, you know, itself. So I, yeah. it's bizarre. He, he just mentions it in passing, even though he has a whole section, a whole chapter on the movies he directed. He talks more about Sister Act 2 and, uh, you know, the Knott's Landing episodes that he directed than, than See, this I'm, movie. Strange. I'm, I'm curious. I actually... I did not read his book. He's someone when it comes to like just about any other long form interview, radio, podcast, written form that he's done, you know, I'm, I'm up on. And I'm wondering, because with, the, with what you mentioned with The Killing Floor, is it like that with De- Deacons for Defense? Because that's another movie he made that up until a few years ago, he got put on IMDb. It's still not on his Wikipedia page, but it's like a Forrest Whitaker starring movie that he made in 2003. It was made for TV, but it's like it's a thing that exists. But like, depending on where you look, it just does not show up. Yeah, um, I don't think that one comes up either. The, <laughs> the, the, the deepest good- dive in the book that I didn't know about is that he made a movie called Cover after making Deep Cover. So he's got a movie I saw called that. Deep I, Cover I, and one I, called I, yeah, Cover. Yeah, yeah. Strange. The Deep Cover the, Cut. The, the Vivica Fox starring film that I, yes. I, have, not, I have not seen. So. Yeah, the one yeah. for me that I tried to find because of this episode was America's Dream with Wesley Snipes. Did you guys read oh. about this one? Yeah. I, couldn't, yeah, I yeah. couldn't find a copy of Wesley Snipes and Danny Glover about the guy who paints the uh, the Black Jesus painting. You know what's crazy? That was on um, television when I was a freshman in high school. Like, I remember seeing it was on, uh, it was like, show, it wasn't HBO, but it was like a movie. It was either like, Showtime. No, it was HBO. Oh, it was. Yeah, I saw it. It was like a. I remember that they they were pushing that movie hard. I remember specifically one clip from the trailer. You know, the kid shows up with the black Jesus, and Wesley Snipe flips out like, "What are you doing?" Like, and I remember seeing it, and that's another one too. That's like it's a thing. It exists, but a lot of people don't know about it. You know. 
Yeah, I mean, he's had a weird filmography as a director, obviously. He, he, just a weird film career, period. But as a director, I think recently, in the last few years, the I'm using air quotes because uh, those of you guys are listening, but the whole prestige movie crowd, I think it has to do with, like, deep cover, you know, being on Criterion, his documentary film, Dark Girls, you know, playing at, at Toronto and then, the, you know, the bigger film festivals. And then, you know, the the killing floor kind of being picked up by like the popular repertory theaters throughout the country. But there's so much in between. I think when you think of Bill Duke as the director, we don't need to be getting to an actor uh, or maybe we'll touch on it. But I do think deep cover is that kind of main thing. Like, John, when you text me the other day, you mentioned something about Sister Act 2. And for a split second, I was like, what are you talking about? Oh, yeah, I guess he did direct that. Like, you know, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Those are weird ones. And of course, you know, we all know Bill Duke from growing up for his stints as an actor and Predator and Commando and Bird on a Wire and other films like that. He kind of be Action Jackson. Action Jackson, of course. Yeah, some classics. I always and, think uh, of him as being from the Limey. That's really when I think of him as an actor. But that's a great, but that really is a great scene. That that's my side note. That's just like part of my favorite Soderbergh era. Oh, sure. And like that scene specific, the way he used to just kind of do like choppy cut up editing and the way he would take the audio and wouldn't always match up with the video like that. And and that's a great scene. Um, So, yeah, Yeah, no, that's I wasn't being sarcastic when I think of him as an actor. That's the first thing. scene. Oh, yes. He's better known as a character actor and even showed up in, in Mandy more recently. Uh, so he's still, you know, people still want to put him in movies and, you know, he's still got a very recognizable presence. But his and directing he was, career. Uh, yeah, he was one of the first black TV directors to direct like network episodic black television. Directing like uh, Dallas and. and uh, yeah, Falcon not Press black television, like black directors working in network <laughs> episodic television. Yeah. Yeah. Which but people is, usually don't know that about him. I mean, if they just know him from his acting stints, they don't realize like, oh, this is the guy who directed deep cover and, and films like that so it's been kind of cool to see him get sort of a more of a you know revival recently especially with absolutely um uh but but the, this film came up specifically when i was watching the deep cover they had an interview with him and, and fishburn and fishburn raved about the killing floor he was like it's so amazing it's just an incredible important film and it's early dennis farina role and all this other stuff and again bill Duke just kind of said they're like mm, yep like i was like really you don't want to jump wow. in here and just wow. you know to yeah. talk about your movie a little bit so it's kind of weird i had one theory i don't think it's an actually a valid theory but because he talks so much in the book about be- becoming a ve- vegetarian and i'm wondering like huh I oh, if, like, the slaughterhouse stuff in a lot this of movie meat. yeah he doesn't like it anymore you know i don't know oh, that's <laughs> maybe that's something but <laughs> Um, but yeah, I don't know why it kind of uh, fell through the cracks, but after seeing it for the first time, what were your impressions of it? Oh, I, I enjoyed it very much. Even there's like, I don't want to sound like insulting. There's like, you know, a couple of rough parts in terms of maybe like acting or whatever. Like it definitely has like that PBS feel to it. That's not necessarily a bad thing. I'm just it's, saying it's you theatrical know. in its performances and yeah. screenwriting. And I think that's coming out of, you know, the the playwright who wrote it. It just it does. And what PBS was up for at that yeah. time, it does have. Yeah, mid, very, mid 80s. Yeah, that kind of American playhouse it was made for. And yeah. it's it does have that feel, you know, uh, the uh, the the. Um, uh, it's Leslie yes. Lee was the was the writer of it, and um, 
and it does have that feel. There's no question. There's especially times where they do like the two characters sitting back to back, like looking just off camera and imagining their lives and this kind of very stilted theatrical speak that you only ever see in plays, you know? Yeah. You know, another thing too, going back to what John was kind of touching on, it was, I watched it for the first time with my wife. I start, it was like, I don't know, like a minute or two in and she's like, Oh, this looks interesting. And then like afterwards I was telling her like, you know, the guy that directed this is the guy from like predator and commando. And she's like, really? Like, I always find that interesting how it's like, Bill Duke has the body Ventura. (laughs) Bill Duke has his roles in films that are like, you know, popular amongst black folks in terms of black culture, you know, like car wash, but the general, you know, folks know him for being in like Arnold Schwarzenegger movies. So it's interesting when it's like, Oh, he made this movie. Um, So, and she liked it, you know, it's, it's also an interesting dynamic, you know, watching me, you know, a black man with my white wife watching this film and like certain things, how certain things play out in this film. Like a lot of the dialogue, a lot of the scenarios like Bill Duke and, you know, there is no holding back. Um, I don't mean to jump too much ahead, but it always strikes me odd as how the kind of antagonistic white guy at first becomes like his best buddy, like midway into the movie. It's, you know, but, and as a younger, you know, I'm born in the eighties. So when I see stuff like that, you know, my mind automatically always goes to that kind of Eddie Murphy thing. Like if that was me, you know, but then hearing stories from my grandparents and even my dad, it's like, yeah, you know, sometimes certain things just kind of worked out that way. Like, I don't know what to tell you. And it's like, it seems unbelievable, but stuff like that does, you know, I'm sure that that happened. I I had a similar kind of reaction to that just in terms of like, what is the movie trying to tell me here? Because it's set yeah. in the 1910s, right? During yep. world starts during World War One, mm-hmm. where jobs uh, in the North are becoming more available because everyone's going, being enlisted, going off overseas. So the main yes, character jobs, specifically up, jobs previously restricted to white workers are being available to uh, to black workers leaving the heavily segregated South behind for the um, unsegregated Chicago. Yeah. Right. And specifically coming up to work in this um, slaughterhouse and uh, which is, you know, immediately tied to the meatpacking plant and that industry. And so the, obviously it's a very pro-union movie, right? It's about that kind of the birth of like, you know, union. sort of. It, well, that's I, the I thing. That's, yeah. that's my big question is like, it's clearly pro-union. It clearly wants to like, uh, you know, talk, have a conversation about like, you know, unity through, you know, worker, you know, solidarity, which for a while, like, seems like, okay, I kind of get what they're saying here, but then it's interesting because you think about a movie like Deep Cover, where a film that's, you know, it's like fish porn going undercover, being used by, you know, the, by the, by the, um, the politicians and by the, um, the, the, the people who send him in deep undercover. Yeah. Clearly he's being used by them. Clearly, you know, going into this criminal organization, they're not good either. And it really becomes kind of like a tale of like, this individual who's kind of torn between two places, two organizations that are both bad and sort of killing floor kind of flirts with that for a while. The union is kind of bad. The meatpacking, you know, people who are trying to crush the union are bad. And so we kind of like just stay focused on our main character who's kind of torn between these two, not necessarily good organizations. Well, let's let's because this requires history and what's happening in this film. Let's let's go through the historical aspect of it a little bit, which this movie is set. Right. So it starts a little I think it's 1917 is when the film starts. You have this uh, um, uh, black worker move up to Chicago 
get a job in a slaughterhouse and immediately sort of start to hook up with the unions. The film hinges on uh, the red summer of 1919. And the red summer was when you had a series of um, race riots. I don't even know what they're called now around the United States. I feel like just using the phrase race riots to describe when, when white people basically went and, and crushed and massacred, massacred black communities yeah, yeah. in these cities. Uh, you know, there might be some new terminology for it. If there is, I'm not up on it. But you had race riots around the country in 1990. It's very comparable in terms of scale and the sheer amount of violence to the long, hot summer of 67. Those are sort of the two big, uh, and I know I'm not supposed to call what happened in 67 race riots anymore. So the two big racial conflict uh, uh, summers where black neighborhoods and black communities are essentially burned down and destroyed. There's there's slaughter on, on a fairly mass scale in these summers. Chicago was one of uh, the um, cities that had uh, the most uh, um, where the conflict escalated through the black communities fighting back. So you had, uh, I think it was 23 white people killed and uh, or 23 black people killed and 15 white people killed. And you had uh, white neighborhoods burnt down as well, although there's very strong evidence that it was white people burning down those neighborhoods in an attempt to curry the favor of other white communities against the blacks because the way it was in Chicago is you had the black neighborhood on the south side pressed right up against the Irish neighborhood right and the Irish neighborhood was like the long-standing political machine neighborhood like a lot of people in that a lot of cities in that era you had the Irish people who were heavily involved in politics the police all of these different sorts of things massive in uh, immigrant community and right next to it you had the expanding black community because there were so many jobs and opportunities coming up right there, right? So there were major conflicts between the Irish and the black. There were the Eastern Europeans who were also coming to the city who didn't inherit uh, any of these sort of longstanding grievances against black Americans. They were sort of neutral, the the like uh, Polish and Lithuanians and that they, they were not the drivers of the writing in the way that uh, generational Americans and Irish immigrants were right. So to get them on their side, there's evidence that that white people burn down uh, white neighborhoods that like probably Irish. It's probably actually some of the gangs that went on to be uh, Capone's gangs were behind it is what they think now. Although, again, a huge amount of this is speculative. You know, none of this is actually proven what happened. The idea is that you had white people in blackface pretending to be black, burning down these houses to, to, uh, to expand the animus, to get, we'll burn down the Polish neighborhoods, then the Polish people will be on our side. The Essentially, the Irish's plan was to drive black people entirely out of the city of Chicago, right? And to, to drive them out, to literally burn down their neighborhoods, get black people out of Chicago, sort of uh, do what what would happen in the, uh, the the Tulsa race massacre. Right. That was the idea to do something like that. It didn't come to that. What actually kicked off the rioting, which I don't even know if it's mentioned in the film, Chicago was unsegregated, which was uh, the case for a lot of northern cities. The only place where it had any kind of informal segregation were the beaches. They had segregated beaches at that time. And there was a group of black teenagers on like a makeshift raft 
craft that sort of floated into the white area because they're teenagers not paying attention. And they started immediately getting pelted with rocks. Right. I think the, the main kid was named Eugene Williams. One of the kids got hit in the head and fell into the water and eventually drowned because they couldn't get him to the beach in time because the closest beach was the white beach where people were throwing rocks at them and not letting them come to the beach. Right. When the police do get there, they don't arrest the guy who had been like the instigator of the rock throwing, the main rock thrower. And instead, they arrest a black guy who's really upset about what's happened. Right. And that's what kicks all of this off. And there's actually interesting throughout this. You obviously see that the political machine apparatus is on the side of the white communities in a very concrete way. When these riots are all over, there's a bunch of people killed. There's incredible damage on on most uh, most um, on both sides uh, of it, but specifically much more damage on the black side to black neighborhoods. The only people arrested for rioting and, and given the death penalty, they arrested 17 black men for it and no white people. And in fact, there's a judge who has a quote. He was, you know, like the judge depicted in the killing floor, losing his patience with the, the police at one point and, uh, and said, essentially, I can't remember what the exact quote is, but it's something like you're only bringing me black defendants to put in jail. They're not rioting against themselves. Bring me more diverse people right now, or I'm not putting anyone else in prison. Um, and so that is the backdrop of all of what's happening in this movie. This movie focuses on uh, and builds to a climax that's a very specific moment in this conflict, which is very strong. It sort of gets to the film Strange Politics and what John's talking about, my inability to understand what it's saying and sort of I, I had a lot of problems with this movie. I'll say I hadn't seen it either till you said you wanted to do the episode on it. And I think it's politics are are incoherent. And maybe that's because I'm viewing it through a 2020 lens instead of a, uh, a 1984 lens. But not even 1984, like uh... yeah lens of the time. I don't mean to cut yeah. you off, but yeah. yeah. No, I just wanted to say that the, the setup is, is that as these riots are happening, because the meatpacking plants, because the uh, stockyards are in white neighborhoods, African-American workers, and I think it was 15,000 of them, all of them were ordered to stay home, right? And not come into work while, while the race riots are happening. <laughs> what happens is and the movie, this is where I think the movie, I'm going to talk about the historical record now and what not what happens in the movie. What happens is, is that the meatpacking bigwigs who want to break the unions use this moment of racial strife uh, to leverage that towards breaking the unions. So they want to bring all of the scab black workers back and sort of give the jobs away of the unionized black workers to scab black workers is like their plan is that they're going to break the union and leverage it. And, and it was only like it was of the 15,000. I think it was only a couple thousand, like five or six thousand uh, that were non-unionized. Right. So it's sort of a switch out. It's going to be this switch out moment for it. And they realize they're going to be able to do this because the National Guard and local militias are getting sent in anyway to stop the rioting. So they're going to have this excuse to bring in scab workers and, quote unquote, bring the black workers back 
to work by using the military, by using all this front. To me, the story of what happens there, and they do break the union. They do completely break the union's uh, power in uh, in this area, right? Something uh, like 30 or, years, right? So yeah, like 20 years. Yeah, yeah, 20 years. I think it's the late 30s when they finally start reassessing, uh, re- get control of it, that they become a fully unionized meat packers union. Um, but that's that's what the story is, is that they they use the scabs to break the unions. And also something that the film does touch on is there had been a lot of black workers who were being used as agent saboteurs and um, and and black and um, and uh, strike breakers, essentially, by the meat packers. Right. That they realized that the people who were who had no fidelity to the union were the black workers and they would do things like show up at union meetings and hurl bricks at them and stuff. And they were being paid on the sly to do this. Right. And so that's one of the things I find strangest about this movie and sort of why its politics are a little confused and confusing to me is because there's there's a really clear villain in this, like there is in a lot of industrialization in that era. And it's it's the the meat packers brass, you know, it's the people in, in charge of these companies. And and it's also difficult to talk about, this is a weird um, moment, an incident to talk about, right? Because the the there's something horrible happening in larger Chicago to its black community. There's white massacre of black people happening, but you have this microcosmic part of it in which the black workers were wrong and were on the sides of the villain and being manipulated by the villains. Right. Yeah. But to jump into, I think it's easy to, I I think the bigger racial specific component is, and this is when it gets even more like messy is that when it comes to like, it's still like this in 2020, when there's like unity, everyone kind of wants, you know, black, come on unity. But then when we're not needed anymore, it's like, all right, get out of here. So it's easy to use because it's true. It's that saying when like in the military, when the famous black soldier was like no Vietnamese black guy, like no Vietnamese ever called me nigger. So it's kind of like, well, let's use like, it's basically that idea. Like let's use that, which is, you know, early on in the movie, that's basically the main character's thought. It's just like, Hey, I'm just trying to get a job. I, I don't care about this country. White people have been treating me like shit forever. As long as I have a job, you know, I I, I don't care, which that's kind of just mostly my, my mindset, too. Yeah. So it's but, easy. It, but it's yeah, not it's but easy. it's not the unions who throw them the way it's specifically that sentiment is leveraged to break the unions. And again, the majority of African-American workers, of black workers in this meatpacker were unionized and they were the ones who lost their jobs when the scabs were brought in too, you know? And that's sort of like the people, you know, the people that got across the board, everybody unionized got fucked, you know? And that's sort of like the unity is broken, not by 
the white union that then makes the black union workers second class citizens. That's not what's happening at all. It's the meatpacker sort of pushes everybody down to the level of scabs. That's what always happens, yeah. you know, that everybody has to be reset to the level of scab after a union's broken, you know, and yeah. that's sort of that's who's getting <laughs> thrown away in that way. And I it's funny even hearing a... hearing you talk about it now. It's it does remind me of of the film where, you know, you you do go, oh, it's just racial animus being used and manipulated and to to break any sense of working class unity, you know, of real working class unity and how that's like how this movie is really about the birth of modern politics, where in 100 years you do see these same stories played out over and over again, you know, that this is that it's the strategies for breaking working class solidarity in America are extremely consistent, you know, and not just working, just class stuff. And I don't want to get too specific on the conversations I've had in two separate conversations I've had in the last 24 hours. I know this, even though this is a, a pay kind of thing, it's just a little sensitive, but the conversation that I had with my wife last night and the conversation I was, I, I had to pause for a second to get on this podcast, but between like Irish and black people. And then with my wife, yesterday, you were talking about feminism and black women and how just like, that's not always, it's not always like the unity that's presented up front is not always the case too. So it like, it, yeah. it just reminded me about that stuff too. How again, like Irish people, when they're everyone in the world, I, I'll even throw black folks in there too. They like oppression Olympics. Everyone loves to do that. Well, we have, you know, like that's always a thing. But I will say when black oppression comes up, you know, a lot of times there's like a certain, not everyone, but a certain class and a certain group of Irish people is like, well, we too. And it's kind of like, yeah, but then when the dust settled, like you ran the police, you ran the fire department, you became politicians, you had mob, and then we still were on that level of, you know, being treated like shit. It's like no one's denying that you weren't, but it's also like you eventually kind of won, but then you still want to talk about how you were oppressed, but you're kind of on top. Yeah. At least at least b between black folks and Irish, you're, you're, you're on top. So it's like, what do you want? It's like, yeah, you, 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 you won and you still want to be oppressed, but you know, yeah. let me not. Like I said, also one defense. thing, one more thing I want to mention about this yeah. before I forget it. One of the policy outcomes of the red summer and specifically in Chicago was that uh, local politicians and Woodrow Wilson, Woodrow Wilson being president for this is like the worst fucking case scenario. He's a bona fide racist. I don't know what history thinks about him, but he's he's bad news. He's the guy who famously said birth of a nation is like history written with yeah, lightning. Yeah, yeah. Right. So one of the big policy outcomes is they say we can't have riots happen like this again in Chicago. What's the solution? We have to segregate the city. Right. So right. that's where segregation in Chicago and that era comes from is specifically like we have to keep these races and ethnic groups apart from each other. We have to have segregation to prevent this from happening again. And it's another one of those things where in the immediate aftermath of it, because they're getting slaughtered, the black community was like, yes, great idea. You know, that 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 happens as well. And it's accepted in that moment when, again, you've leveraged it to break somebody, take advantage of them and put them in a worse position. That's what the power structure does with it. So you have that reflected with the unions as well with this. And very, very quickly, I'm sure that, you know, that becomes an, an unpopular uh, position. Uh 
but it does but remind me it does remind me of that the source of the three strikes laws and rockefeller drug laws in the early 90s these were pushed for by black communities in the wake of white flight right and that white community if white people are abandoning these communities that's why you have the harshest drug laws in the nation in new york and california are both incredibly liberal longtime democratic nations right longtime democratic yeah. states because the original source for this it was just easy political points for people to score to say yes we do care about these communities we need these incredibly harsh drug laws and immediately again it's like the same, that moment when you have completely broken communities in the late 80s and they will agree to anything you know that's yeah. that's reflected in this as well and that's what i mean about power structure leverage uh, against it and that's why i find it so strange that the meat packers aren't the villains in this they're sort of background gray evil in this movie they're not the forefront villains yeah. well know? speaking of background and forefront too just all that history you're talking about with the chicago race riots is also kind of a background thing too like there's not really yeah. these elaborate scenes of a race right it's always the aftermath it's like you know there's like a town meeting and it's people like holding their oh we just got out of the, you know like we just got attacked yeah. or like someone runs up hey did you hear what happened like I, I do want, I think that's a, I, I, I appreciate that choice. I also wonder if that's just like a budget kind of thing. Like you don't have the, the I, well, not just budget, but just, you don't have the capacity to make these big elaborate scenes. So you have to kind of do it cleverly and, and, and yeah. use it as like the backdrop or just like make a thing in passing. And I, I, I do think it works. Um, so, so that's kind of another thing too. Like it's easy. It's almost easy to forget like the all the historical stuff you're talking about or not even realize all the historical stuff you're talking about is taking place during yeah uh, the setting of of this movie. That's why I find it's politics strange, you know. And yeah. John, what were you well, going to say? I cut you off a little earlier. Well, I was going to say I was going to speak to that directly the kind of fuzziness of the movie's politics in its defense, I guess you could say when you're like why is, you know, um why is Moses Gunn not like the main character of this movie? Because you kind of respond more to his righteous indignation and anger. Yeah. That's the most powerful thing in the film, even though he's kind of more like a villain in this movie because he's, you know, refusing the union and all, and basically uh, telling the main character, Frank, that he's, you know, he's working a, as a, a union strike breaker and a stab. Right. Right. The, but, right. But he's telling him he's a stooge for the union, which you're like, well, that's true. I mean, they're just using them. They're like Pelosi taking the knee with African garments. You know, it's no, it's all no, just no, using, no, you know. no. They're actually getting better working conditions, material working conditions for black workers. They are. That's a fact of what the unions were doing at this time. There's no. I know. I know. But yeah. watching the film, you're yeah. you're connecting more with like the righteous indignation than you are with like the logic of no, no, this makes sense. Like they're getting a better deal and the union really is looking out for them and wants them all to get fair wages and gets them, you know, more than you know, eight hour work day, a eight hour work day compensation. If they lose an arm or die on the slaughterhouse floor, these are the things of, you know, getting paid 50 cents an hour instead of 11 cents an hour. These are the things that the union were fighting for in this era, a weekend, you know, not just Sunday off. These are, these are the, the material changes that create our sense of the modern work week week that in this era, the unions are, are fighting for. It's not, Nancy Pelosi taking a knee and doing literal jack shit. Otherwise, well, I mean, that, I'm, I'm, I'm no, no, I'm, I'm saying that that is what Moses Gunn is accusing. She wore Frank candy cloth. Yeah, I was very, <laughs> I was very moved 
I was very moved by it. I, you remember I Venmoed you $5. Thank you. I was so, you know, I saw that tweet about if you have a black friend, send them $5 today. How did that feel, Marcus? Did that, did I solve racism? Uh, Yes. Well, (laughs) you solved my immediate problem. You helped with my rent. A lot of, a lot of my friends uh, Venmoed me money. Is that true? No, no, oh, absolutely Christ. not. I was going to say, didn't. I'm such a racist. I was going to say, all of your friends are black. Who fucking Venmoed you money? <laughs> Doug, Doug Cohen better have sent you enough money for everybody. Yeah. I, uh, let me not. <laughs> I mean, because, uh, because is, 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 does he count as white now? I, I didn't. I, I, I don't know, but I don't want to go off on that. Yeah. So, as soon as I'll I said that, that I thought, oh, people are going to read that as some kind of anti-Semitic thing as, a, as opposed to a specific anti-Doug Cohen statement directed <laughs> at him directly. But because Frank himself becomes so mixed up in the middle of this, he's such a confused character. You know, he's got one person telling him, I want to make you know life better for you and for your coworkers and for another one to say, you know, culturally you are completely selling out and you're, you know, you're going with this, these white workers instead of us, you're not sticking with us. It's, you know, it makes things fuzzy in this movie, you know, it kind of makes your opinion of everybody kind of more confused because you don't really attach to Frank because he's not, he's not kind of shown as to be like a dynamic leader or somebody with like great political ideas himself. He's someone who's really kind of trying to like stay afloat and make this all make sense for his own, you know, for himself. So we're kind of going, you know, it's hard to kind of pick up and like go take this movie with him, a two hour movie, you know, to stick with him the entire time where it just seems like he's kind of, completely at sea the entire the entire running time the thing that's strange about this movie ultimately what happens at the end is you have the main character who's been pro-union the whole time uh decide to go in with the scabs and hide his union button and go in and break the strike right and his presence in the crowd is also sort of used as a reason for the um, union people who recognize him as a union man and the group of returning black workers to not escalate violence. He sort of uses his union shield to break the strike. But the movie otherwise is a pro-union movie. So it seems to be making a pro-union movie out of a radically anti-union gesture and a radically sad anti-union moment you know sad if you like the unions and believe in the unions in that era what the unions become later on in life is something for somebody else to discuss but i think there's no question at this moment in time the unions are in the right you know this movie going back to bill duke's age and the kind of background he came from parts of this movie are my there's like a side i I mean, I feel like it's only like a kind of an older black American saying it's like it's a similar thing that I heard from my grandmother. And I'm sure other people can attest to this, too, where like more conservative minded older black folks tell this tale of just like how concerned. I mean, it, it's up to you. But like, do you want to deal with being called a racist name or do you want to make or do you want to think do you want to like have to just endure being getting called a few names, but then making things better for you and your family and generations to come. There's this saying where like this black guy sticks his head out of a train to see something. And then a white guy goes, Hey, you N word, there's another train coming, get your head. And then the black guy with his head still out of the window turns and said, what did you say? And then gets his head knocked off. But it's like the moral of the, it's like, get your head back in and then, you know, address what the guy said rather than, and, and I think, 
elements of that remind me of this movie, because like the way he's approached to join the union and when he declines at first, like immediately there's that veiled kind of like he's attacked with racism. But then like what we were talking about later, the same guy who's so obviously racist and just so angry towards his blackness becomes his friend, too. Um, and things were and then things, you know, are going good for a while because it, because he joined the union. So it's just like another example of like things that people black folks had to kind of endure in order to get to a certain place. And I don't know, I feel like I'm kind of rambling to some degree, but no, go on. It, 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 it just goes into the kind of muddled, complex, like, what are we trying to say here of this movie? Um, that things weren't always per- like you, you, you hear these things of like, I stood strong and didn't join with the white people, but it's like, but that really was not always the case. Like a lot, there's all these, so many untold stories of just like, you do what you got to do to kind of make things better for yourself and for your family. And if it means like locking arms with someone who doesn't necessarily like you or your race, it sucks, but sometimes that's, well, that's kind of what, but what, that's what, also what, what by, I think one of the budgetary limitations of this movie, because they don't have a ton of money, it's, thousands and thousands of people at the end in real life and this yeah, movie yeah, has yeah. enough money yeah, for yeah, like yeah. for a like 30 yeah like yeah. 30 white guys and like 50 yeah. black yeah, guys yeah, 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 yeah. and yeah. it's thousands upon thousands and there and there's thousands of black union workers as well you know that yeah. that's something yeah. that gets lost in you this. wouldn't get that yeah no you definitely yeah, you get, get that it like it's this one yeah. this one guy who buys in and that's obviously not the case with this i would say that that's one of again what's confusing about the movie is you have a desegregated city and desegregated society there where black people are working along white pe- side white people in every line of work virtually right And certainly in the working class, probably not management class. And this is the moment in which segregation is instituted, in which, you know, desegregation is broken, you know, and there's no sense of that in this film. And it feels a little more like what you're saying, uh, the more modern perspective of, oh, they're going along with the white people, as opposed to he would have been going along with thousands of other black people as well, you know, that it wasn't just purely, uh, as simple as that in this area after this it gets very simple after this it does become you have segregated black communities you have you know uh you you enter into that that era of very harsh segregation uh where it even intensifies down south that he's leaving you know a lot of the story of this movie that i feel like doesn't get again played up in this movie is he's leaving mississippi yeah 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 segregation behind to leave the much harsher second-class citizen uh, 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 world of that behind, you know, and that doesn't really get felt in this movie at all. You know, I, yeah, I was going to say that, too, you know, speaking of se- segregation, I don't want this to turn into a whole other historical podcast, but like this time frame is just on the cusp, you know, just after the 1910s and you get to the 1920s and 30s, there's just so much evidence that it sounds weird to see, even in 2020, as people still don't get it, but like to some degree in a lot of communities, segregation worked for black people. It's just crazy when you say it like that, people are like, huh, what? But when it's like black stores, like black trucking, black, th- like there were so many things that certain black communities gave up just to kind of sit next to white people and have a mediocre hamburger. And then it kind of, to some degree, a lot of effort of black ownership during those times went away but i'm not trying to downplay it because unfortunately there are it it is those necessary evils where it's just like 
voting or like if you have to use the goddamn post office or if it's like you need to use a hospital. There are certain things you have to fight for, but there, there were huge sacrifices. Well, one like, of the I, interesting I, 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 things about this, the, about the, the Chicago uh, race riots was that a large mob of white people went and tried to burn down a black hospital with people yeah. inside and were protected by the police and prevented sure. from doing that, which, again, you mentioned specifically black businesses. As I say, it's an unsegregated society. There's still the black hospital, the black. Yeah, neighborhood. yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. It's not like the modern sense of of unsegregated. It just means that people could travel freely between neighborhoods. A better yeah. comparison might be like, you know, um, Bensonhurst in the 80s is probably a better comparison than, literally, than literally. Bensonhurst yeah, in literally. 2020. You yeah. know? I just <clears throat> I just think sometimes still it, it amazes me that people think that it was just I mean don't get me wrong, it was there it was a terrible time, but it was just like nonstop fear and sadness and, and despair where there, there was there were there were some huge strides being made in segregated times by black folks like they just made really kind of made the best out of nothing and, and, and uh, like across the country in certain pockets and it just gets overlooked where it was just nonstop. i mean let me not downplay it but it was just like it was lynching and everyone was poor and everyone was disadvantaged uh, and and it just wasn't exactly like that i just think there's a lot of yeah. nuances in history that people don't know about i mean you One know thing, just with lynching <clears throat> real quick to mention another specific thing for this exact era of this movie 1918 and 1919 is when the reconstituted clan happens because of birth of a nation and so you have the clan actually this is mm. it's a yeah. force well. You know, I don't know if people know the history of the Klan. It's something that exists uh, in the Reconstruction era, post-Civil uh, War, slavery era. And there are a lot of lynchings. It fades away and is basically gone. And then Birth of a Nation causes it to pop again and become a force again, specifically in the South in 18, uh, eight, uh, 1918 and 1919 are when it's really the most most clan associated lynches happening. Fortunately, the history of lynching in the United States from 1890, when it when it peaks, it's a very steady downward decline, you know, even with the reconstituted clan as it goes down very, very consistently until it's gone by the 50s, basically. Yeah. I'm just throwing, lynching is just a term that, you know, it doesn't necessarily yeah. be lynching. But yeah, I um, but I was getting at too. this movie coming out in 1985 and it's directed by a black person. It's still interesting that <clears throat> I have to name drop both HBO shows, stuff like Lovecraft Country, which I still yeah. kind of don't know what that show is getting at. And then um, what's the other thing I'm thinking of? Um, Lovecraft and uh, oh, Watchmen, the Watchmen show. There's these little snippets of history that they put in there. And it's amazing that people are like, wait, this kind of stuff happened? Like full grown adults, like people my age don't know that race riots happen or don't know that things like this. Well, just like, to go like back, Chicago, it, it's very, it kind of amazes yeah. me. But then but I also to go get back to, to lynching to go back to lynching until John and I are, are working on this, this book, I had to do a lot of research of the history of lynching for this book and whatever you think lynching was, it was a thousand times worse and more. Oh, I could imagine. I you know, whatever imagine. you think it, you think it's they just strung somebody up. No, it's they would hang pregnant women from their feet and cut their bellies open and stomp the babies to death. This is what lynching was a thousand times worse than whatever yeah. you think it was. Yeah. Poor boiling oil on people to flay their skin off. You know, like whatever you think yeah. lynching was, it was way fucking worse than that. Yeah. You know, yeah. and that's something that I feel like adults don't know 
know that they think it's like a scene out of a out of a cowboy movie of get a rope and you put them on a horse yeah. and that's or even mississippi was. burning to some degree yeah. which is which is which is a little hollywood you know yeah. and, but 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 then i always but like take something like which and that that being the pinnacle and that being you know almost a a, a community thing so imagine like <clears throat> I, you know, going back to something like Emmett Till was not just like a one, th- like, you know, it, it's not in, or the black guy looking at the white woman, just the whole idea of a black person looking at a white person cross. Yeah. Was like a crazy offense. So it's kind of, you know. Yeah. But and then Emmett Till is also obviously interesting the context of this movie of talking about somebody from Chicago who's yeah, different, right. used to go. a different yeah. set of mores going to a small town and crossing those social lines that he doesn't he doesn't know that he's going to get lynched for going into it seems like all he fucking did was go into a store in the case of Emmett Till it really yeah. seems like all he fucking did was go into a store I don't even think he did anything beyond that that's a very important yeah I I got to circle back to what you said too about the whole setting he's leaving the deep south going to the midwest and how there's so many I wonder if not movies like the killing floor and the comedy made I do wonder sometimes if non-black people notice the huge cultural black differences from like a family from Texas, a family from, you know, Queens versus, you know, I'm talking black family from Georgia, black family from California. Like there, there, a lot of it, there are some Southern roots, but there's so many, there, there's like some, so many distinct differences. It's not all the it's same. It's almost like, as though you know, race is an artificial construct and not a monolith that binds people <laughs> together eternally <laughs> like it, it's I I, <laughs> I I i go back to your emmett till point too about how yeah he was he wasn't from there he was from somewhere else and just not knowing the climate if whatever happened happened you know like 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 you said but I, I think about that a lot and i think about my time at you know it reminds me about my time at like hampton university i went to a historically black college that was 90 91 you know black and meeting people from you know oakland and not you know, certain similarities, of course, but like so many different, like me from a small town in Massachusetts and I grew up, you know, in, in a black household, but like not relating to this guy from Oakland, not relating to this guy that came from Detroit. Like there's so many, you know, well, even just now, the difference yeah. between St. Albans and Jamaica, where, you know, St. Albans, where where your mm-hmm. grandmother's house is and, and Chip is and, and mm-hmm. Jamaica, Queens. It's just even those neighborhoods are wildly yeah. different, even though they're, and they're right next to each other. Yeah. And predominantly yeah. black. Um, not to get too far afield from this movie. Let me so, ask you, uh, how did you feel about the Mary Alice subplot? What's what the fuck is up with that? What do you make of that thing? She's oh, the woman who runs the stage uh, store. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know until you just said that, like right now, I was like, oh, yeah, that whole thing where he needs the woman to like transcribe the letters, you know, and, and, and whatnot. And you know, she makes a, some like that, fancy letters. And just to tell the listeners, whoever yeah. she's he needs somebody to write a letter to his wife back in Mississippi before she comes to join him. He goes to this woman who's like very sort of patrician in manner. Uh, she looks a little more wealthy and she writes the letters in a fancy. She changes it from he says, say he says, well, right, dear Mary. And she says, how about you change it to my dearest Mary? Yeah. Right. And he has like a crush on her and he's going to say something, but she's got a, a husband, right? It's this very strange subplot. Sorry. Just to, yeah, no, right. yeah, yeah. interestingly yeah. played by Mary Alice, which if you know, if you're cinephile mind watching a movie about a young 
black man who's got a family works in a slaughterhouse, you're immediately going to go to uh, kill, uh, killing of uh, sheep, killer kill sheep, sheep, which kill uh, sheep. and she was into uh, to sleep with anger. with anger. Yeah, Charles. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I didn't really make. I'm going to be. Honest, I didn't make too much of it outside of just perhaps Bill Duke is just trying to show that another pocket of stuff that you know. Hey, there were black folks around that time who could kind of prosper and have these side hustles that you wouldn't think, think, think about. Um, I, I just, I, you know, movies like this and then me, other people, even just certain things that like my wife didn't necessarily know about. She, you know, my wife's from long Island, a, a very specific kind of middle upper white, you know, part of long Island. So there's just things that they're not exposed to. So it's like me growing up in this overly liberal white town of, of, white people that genuinely not in a cynical way that don't want to offend you don't want to make you feel unwelcome and growing up in a black household like there's so many things that people just don't there's all these nuances i think that people don't know about when it comes to blackness black culture black stories it was just like we struggled and then you know we finally got equality i I, so i think maybe that was just a little accent to show that there were i don't know if affluent is the word but like i said there were these unique little side hustles that yeah it may be what you were talking about about uh, a non-uniformity of of between black communities that's why i thought of of mentioning it in that moment too is it's it's a strange and again when we talk about this movie being a little theatrical and a little stilted those scenes i think are some of the worst of it you know where it does (laughs) feel like uh, it feels like a, a play. It feels old timey in a way that um, uh, feels written. It doesn't feel like real old timey. It feels like ye old ice cream shop old timey to me. Oh, I, uh, I didn't think I didn't think of it. Uh, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm I don't mind watching this movie again. It's one of those like Sunday afternoon movies that I don't mind kind of rewatching. So next time so- I watch it, I'll. Think of I'll it. watch it with that in mind. So we haven't talked about the driving force of this movie. We've been talking a lot about Bill Duke. We mentioned Leslie Lee, the playwright who who wrote the script. The person who got this movie made and was like the driving force on it is Elsa Rosbach, right? Yes. She's the oh, woman yeah, yeah. who got the money together. She's the one who did all of the research. Uh, she's the one who put this thing together. She oversaw the restoration recently. Or she's thanked heavily in it. And it's mm-hmm. my take from the credits is that she was the person who was really the driving, driving force in it. Uh, she raised the money. She had uh, modern unions heavily involved and got them to donate and contribute to the budget in a, in a significant way. And she felt like it was very important to bring in a, a black, uh, black screenwriter, black director, uh, even um, the editor is the great John Carter. Um, and it's uh um what do you what do you think of her as a presence in this film especially with what you were just talking about earlier about uh the relationship between black culture to white feminism and how you're you're allies until you get abandoned kind of thing what do you what do you think (laughs) about this i believe she's even i let me let me look it up i believe she's even uh german um, I'm not even sure she's American, but I'm not sure about that. Yes, she's she's German. She's German or German and American. But I mean, this 
as far as the background, what you said, all the research you did, like this to me, oh God, I'm going to use it, but like the ter- like doing the work, this is an example to me, at least that that is it versus not, well, I guess Twitter didn't exist back then, but just like, you know, saying something out into the void and like, oh, I've done my part where it's kind of, you know, I, I, she did the work. I guess that's all I can really, really say. I don't necessarily have anything bad to say about yeah, I wasn't you, trying you to. I wasn't no, 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 no. I know. I, 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 no, bad. she's just kind. Of, yeah, she is. Yeah, was a driving force behind this film. And this is the kind of movie where you can't just kind of skim. You know, like I, I all the stuff that you're talking about. Like I, I just can't imagine all the research and the effort that went into it because you know, no internet. Like it's literal. Probably like I gotta go to the library and hopefully I can find this microfiche reference. Yeah, like I hopefully <laughs> I yeah I can find it. It's not even like I'm gonna go get this book in a library. It's like you know, a lot of word of mouth even... stuff from people. You know, but but two. You know, I, I was this was this made in '84. Whatever, but still, like you know, the mid '80s. There were. It's crazy to think, and I think a lot of this has to do with just how history is presented. Sometimes you th- you see things from the 1960s that are in black and white, and it subconsciously makes people think it was a thousand years ago. But there's people who are still alive who could recount this stuff. I I, I look yeah. back. You know, I'm so I my I knew my grandfather pretty well. He was born in 1904. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And when you think about it, it's like goddamn. I mean, I, it is a long time ago. But someone who's only 40 years old right now still knew someone who was born in 1904 and remembers their stories. And remember. So I, I think that that stuff is important. That kind of was the internet, you know, and, and social media and, 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 and resources before that stuff existed. So yeah, I didn't realize she was such a driving force behind this. Maybe that will explain why Bill Duke isn't like a bigger advocate of his own movie. That it's not something that kind of oh, yeah, within his own if mind. He just although, sees it like as one of the TV jobs, like a work for hire kind of thing. Yeah. But it's it's it, it. I just find that so hard to believe because Bill Duke as a person, again, even though the average person who knows him or even knows his face knows him as an actor in action films, it's like whenever he speaks, he's so candid and open about just how much racism, racial discrimination, so much about how that stuff played into his life. So that's why I find a yeah, hard time. That's why to, I find it know. so surprising that he doesn't bring this up more often. Yeah. There's even a scene in the movie where when you read his book, he talks about growing up at Poughkeepsie, going to the community college, and how one day he and his friend and uh, a girl wanted to go to a local nightclub. And as soon as they got on the dance floor, everyone else got off the dance floor and yeah. they started playing like an offensive song, Bye Bye Blackbird or something like that to like get them out of the club yeah. and the scene in this movie where they're all going out on the town and get confronted by, you know, just regular white assholes on the street. I thought, Oh wow. This really reminds me of this experience from yeah. Duke's book, even though he didn't write the movie. Sure. So yeah, there's a lot of material here that I would be shocked to hear. It wasn't very close to his heart. I also think there's elements of this movie just from the, I want to sound so basic, but like the 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 framing, the presentation that kind of to me laid the groundwork for like a rage in Harlem. Yeah. Even well, though you know a rage in Harlem, like the tone of that movie is definitely a little more. Uh, what am I? It's not about tongue in cheek. It's it's it, it's a little more vib- vibrant and and playful. But it's still, I think, the roots of, or maybe not. I could be wrong based on you know how. Bill Duke talks or, or doesn't talk about this movie, but I always, it, it seems like Rage and Harlem, I guess that there's like one thing in between the two movies, but still, it's like you go from the killing floor to a Rage in Harlem, 
six, five or six years later, that seems like the natural progression. It's almost like certain things were borrowed from that movie in order to make a rage in Harlem. So. Well, it's funny that you bring up a rage in Harlem because I was thinking about a rage in Harlem when I, when I brought up Elsa Rashback. It was the, uh, the same thing where there was a, a white producer on rage in Harlem who bought the rights to the Chester Himes novel and was like, we have to get a black director for this to come in and do this Chester Himes script. And one of the reasons that movie turned out so strange is that everybody else who was behind it was like, it's a Chester Himes novel. It's a dark crime comedy, but it's a comedy. And Bill Duke was like, this is not a fucking comedy on it. Right. He was like, this is not supposed to be a funny movie at all. And sort of this weird decision. uh, You can see the limitations of a black guy will do this right and not getting Chester Himes even slightly, which is my reaction to that movie is that Bill Duke doesn't understand Chester Himes. But until you said that, that's because to get that's so weird because you have to know Forrest Whitaker's performance it's kind of this bumbling, I don't know what's going on kind of Everybody's thing, on which the right is funny, page except which for is, Duke. Right. Yeah, I guess that's what I'm... But it's like you're, you ha- you gave the direction for Forrest Whitaker to act this way to be like, huh, I don't know what's going on, which is funny. Like, that's a funny... That adds the, the, the kind of humorous tone to the movie, like yeah. him being a sucker for this woman and all this stuff. That, well, so, I think you're overestimating how much a director's in charge of any given performance. I probably am. Especially I, I, I probably an actor am. of of Forrest Whitaker, who that's his movie star moment too. You know, yeah. he's not Bill Duke. If Forrest Whitaker shows up on set the first day with that performance put together, Bill, Bill Duke's not trying to tear that down from the ground and reconstruct it. And I do think that Robin Givens and Forrest Whitaker understand it's a comedy. I think she's very interesting in it. I think no, yeah, she's, she's a total like human life Jessica Rabbit type. Yeah, like sultry, overdone kind of, you know. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it's a good comparison. Per, per, performance. Yeah, she's very. Yeah, everyone is kind of. It's like. It's almost there's this huge hint of like, hey, it's 1990. We're aware that it's 1990, but we're going to go back. We're going to kind of like, hey, have fun and pretend we're in the, you know. Yeah. Listen here. See, you know, like, kind of, you know. Yeah. But it's, it's fine. because It's, I, it's I really not like even neo-noir. It's like it's almost like neo-blaxploitation in some way. Blaxploitation it's, noir. Yeah. No, no. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 It's and a, that's why I get again. It's an I get interesting so, movie for sure. Yeah, I don't very, mean to very. sound like I'm shitting on it. Oh, no. I, and that's why I find it so funny how they reteamed again for this movie Deacons for Defense, which is another similar thing where it's like it was a made for TV movie rarely gets mentioned where some of its politics aren't 100 percent but i don't think when you take a movie about gun ownership in response to being harassed by racist organizations like it's not going to be pretty but basically i if you can seek it out i found it on one of those like dot ru dot net german websites where there's like uh, ads throughout but i i had to watch it because i didn't i was like oh force would have made another movie together but it's loosely i heavily loosely based on the story about this group of like of, of like a minister and his deacons and then of course it expanded to other churches on the neighborhood who were kind of like taking arms to defend yeah. themselves and it, and it's it's it, it's one of those things too where i i i tell people when this subject comes up it's like i'm never gonna own a gun i don't want one but when i see every other community and demographic owning a gun i want black people to own guns responsibly and legally i want them to like that like that's my thing behind it. and i think that's a big point of that movie it's like 
there's nothing wrong with like you're you're not like a diehard like crazy Republican from the South with or, or some like militia guy. It's like there's nothing wrong with responsibly owning a gun. And at this point, uh, you should yeah. because so many other folks own it. And to some degree, I, I don't mean to sound so dramatic, but being the least liked group of people in this country, you got to have some kind of defense. I'm not saying nothing's going to happen. It's one just in case stuff happens. Just be ready. E- everyone else seems ready. So let's just so so let's also be ready. You know what I'm saying? Like and, and I and I think that that's really the, the point of the movie. Yeah, um, it's weird. So. I mean, I come from like a gun owning military <laughs> family. So my relationships yeah. to guns as somebody who was through most of my life, extremely liberal. It was always a little strange where it's like, look, I've, a responsibly owned, you know, rifle or duck gun or something is nothing. You know but what I mean? That's a huge just, myth. But that's know? a huge myth that, that if you are left-leaning liberal, a Democrat, my parents, whatever that, whatever my that term parents is. My parents are yeah. as yeah, right. dyed-in-the-wool blue Democrat Democrats. Yeah, and, you know? and they own guns too. Yeah, I, yeah, you know, but I also think too, it's a generational thing. I, I tell the story now, it's like, not that you would care, but like one day I'm, I'm in my grandmother's basement cleaning stuff out and there's like a pillowcase and there's like a couple of handguns. This was, you know, this was like around 2011 or something. Yeah. And it's like my natural reaction growing up in like super hippie Western Massachusetts is, oh my God. And I go up to my grandmother, I'm like, whose guns are these? And she was like, what they were your grandfather's like she just is so yeah. she's like what do you so like uh, there's been a few what, times what, i've been what do you mean very she's, liberal people they freak the fuck out it's yeah. very strange yeah. like they yeah. it's very strange it's very I, strange I was, you know yeah. that like sheer panic and i understand it's something that can kill you you know i yeah. get it completely yeah. and yeah. there a lot of fucking people are killed in the united states by guns but it is that always surprises me. And I, you know, and I'm also I have like a constitutionalist's uh, vision of that, of like, if it should be very hard, we should interpret every amendment as broadly as possible, because that's the best thing for liberalism is to interpret every movement as broadly as possible. Therefore, the Second Amendment should be interpreted as broadly as the Fourth Amendment and the First Amendment, you know, and I really believe in that. And if we want it changed, let's get the senators together let's get the voting together let's get it organized to get it changed and not have some kind of end rounds where it's going to be ruling by judges fiat on it let's let's get the law changed if it's really that bad let's make better arguments for it you know i also think the whole liberal whatever title you want to use not being used to guns is so is so kind of rooted in like people really look at this country through like six or seven cities and not yeah. the entire 50 states were like, sometimes gun ownership just has to do with like, you live in the country. It's well, not even about another human. It's, it could just be like an animal. Like it's really. Yes. No, that's what to, there was and, the guy and, who did the, you know, uh, the feral pigs tweet. Like I, I have to own a weapon when there's 40 to 50 feral pigs on my property. That's obviously yeah. absurd. And he got made fun of. And it's like, well, but that's what he's saying is basically true. You know, if there's a rabid animal on my property, even I'm not even talking in Montana where you absolutely have to own California as a tool in Pennsylvania, where I live in Pennsylvania, where I live. If you wait for animal control to come, that raccoon is going to be fucking gone, you know, and there are kids in this neighborhood, you know, if you wait for them to come, you know, California, you know, like what you're going to call animal control about a rattlesnake, just fucking shoot it. You know what I mean? Like, 
That's, yeah. uh, you know, uh, although obviously in California, the gun laws are very different. I don't I'm not even sure if my parents brought their guns to California when they live there. And not like my parents are crazy gun owners as well. They're in locks, in the closet. Yeah, yeah, wrapped, yeah, yeah. You don't wrapped hear, up yeah, in blankets. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. overwhelming majority, but probably 19 out of 20 years, they're they're stored in some capacity. Yeah. You know? But I think about places like that that are notoriously not um, heavily read. I just I thought of the I thought of the rattlesnake example because we did have a baby rattlesnake on their oh, property. Jesus. Yeah, and there was and it was a fucking pain in the ass. I had my dog with me too, and it's just uh, now oh, the no. dog can't go outside. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. This yeah, guy yeah, and it's a yeah. baby rattlesnake, so if it bites you, you'll because they don't know how to control their venom, so they bite harder. Yeah. Like you'll yeah. die. It was just like I wish I could just kill this. I wish yeah. I just had a shotgun here and this could be over now, you know, but, but no, but, but I was saying is places that are not notoriously red. I used air quotes again, for those of you listening, like up in Maine to California, to Oregon, like places like that, where it's like, again, it's the country. But I also, I just realized too, now in my life experiences, I've met so many people who think that the South and the country are the same thing. Yeah. Like that, that's a whole other thing where it's like Maine, the goddamn top of this country is the country like the woods and stuff like that just because it's like people really have this like it's not even a venn diagram it's like the south is the country and it's like no like middle america mass goddamn where i'm from i'm from the woods like amherst there's the center of town but after that you go too far out you don't even get cell phone service and i learned later in life too it's just like certain friends of mine or certain friends of friends in amherst like and then I think about it, I was like, oh, yeah, I was over at my friend's house and there was that like shotgun case. You know what I'm yeah. saying? Because it's like, yeah, some days they'd be like like a bear would in the center of town would crawl up the the goddamn pole and you have to get like so it, there were deer and bear and foxes. So yeah. it's just that kind of place. I don't but, think people yeah. realize how much deer suck and are vectors of disease no. and fuck up crops. Deers are real shithead animals. But um. <laughs> But it's also, yeah, not to get too far afield, right, right, right. you know, uh, with with all of this, it it really is one of those things where, again, in when I lived in Pennsylvania, we're 45 minutes outside of Philadelphia, farm country, cows, completely isolated out there. When I lived in Tennessee, I lived uh, 45 minutes outside of Nashville. It was the city. It was built up. It's probably more like 15 minutes outside of Nashville, but it was not. The, it was country music people everywhere. We lived near, you know, Conway Twitty and Tanya Tucker, but it was it was much more the city, you know, than mm-hmm. than Pennsylvania was than that kind of purple state, I guess. So and I do think that it, it's interesting to hear about Deacons for Justice. Deacons for defense. Deacons for defense. It makes me think of Deacon Jones every time you say that. (laughs) Uh, Reggie White, the minister of defense. And uh, yeah, but in the context of this, of killing floor, where the politics are very hard to understand what it's going for, whether it's a pro-union movie or an anti-union movie, whether it's a movie about racial divisiveness it's sort of like you're saying it's a weird pro segregation movie in some ways his courageous decision as portrayed by the movie is to abandon the white people uh who are in the unions and go strike break you know and that is portrayed in as a weirdly courageous decision it's politics are don't fit easily in any any kind of box in that way 
One thing I, I oh, learned okay. about Bill Duke from reading the book, and I don't know what the timeline is here, but he's super Christian. You know? Yeah. And that really puts deep cut, uh, deep cover in particular in a really kind of interesting context for me when you kind of think about the Clarence Williams character in that where Lawrence Fishburne kind of spends the entire movie thinking that, you know, what he's doing is, you know, kind of going up against society and his problems are all society problems, not a moral problem. Mm-hmm. And Clarence Williams becomes the character who says, no, this is a, a question of morality. It's much more simple than you're making it. And I kind of feel a lot of Bill Duke's movies that like, if only things were more simple. I mean, I just to be completely pompous. I see this as like a Dostoevsky kind of thing in deep cover. <laughs> really, where because you, know, like, you yeah. are making this problem more complicated than it needs to be and looking at you know i think that that's absent from killing floor for the most part but when you do look at frank's character and the idea that like he just wants it simple like he doesn't want you know there to be two different factions who are trying to kind of gain dominance in this uh, you know the city and in this industry he wants things to be like just more simple like hey can't we all just be together would shouldn't matter you know you're black you're white you know you're union or not union that the reason that I think he kind of comes off as a weak protagonist is that his frustration over things being as politically complicated as they are, which makes it kind of hard to understand what, what which view the movie is taking, but because it's always his character in every single scene, I, I think, you know, that might kind of give a little insight into who this kind of guy is supposed to be. Yeah. It's, I think it's also interesting that you mentioned the Christianity aspect of it, because at the end, when the black workers are going to go break the strike, right, they're led by a um, by a preacher who's leading the group and and I believe, uh, you know, doing uh, he's leading the group and it unquestionably calls to mind the civil rights movements of the 50s and 60s, which were heavily led by ministers and associated with religion and the black church. It's very deliberately calling that to mind. And that's one of the things I found so strange about a movie that somehow wants to position itself as pro-union as presenting the strike breakers like they're, you know, doing the freedom march in the Selma. Right. Yeah. That the that the scabs are comparing them to the civil rights leaders and evoking that imagery in a way that's very palpable. And that I'm not because sure there's nothing was more time simple. accurate you know yeah well I'm there's not nothing sure. more simple than you know someone who just wants to go to work and just get, yeah. get there yeah. and go to their job right yeah like why can't i just go to work like why do you have to prevent me from doing what i just want to do every day yeah but that's also what's sort of strange about its politics is the people who were preventing the black workers from returning to work were the bosses and they didn't want them to return because they were so many of them were union and that they saw it as a way to not letting them work was a way to leverage it and break the union by having black people in these uh, communities during the race riots uh, haven't been eating for five days haven't been able to to function having them so desperate for work that they are now willing to go in and face down white workers and break the strike. And then on top of it, great, the military's here already. We're going to pretend like we're doing this to sending them in to prevent more race riding. But we're, what, what we're actually doing is we're sending them in so we can break the strike, right? Yeah. yeah. And I think that that stuff's completely absent from the movie. It's it's completely absent from the movie that that the way these not completely absent the way these machinations are it, happening. No, it's definitely muddled though. I mean, yeah, because it is, it's it through is. his perspective, it's really hard to understand 
that historical context without you know, knowing it beforehand. Yeah. And what he's supposed to mean as a figure, Marcus, do you like him as a character? Do you think he did the right thing or the wrong thing? What's your fucking reaction to him? What's your moral judgment of him? He, mm, I do have a judgment, but I don't mean to kind of like <laughs> dump on the guy, but I can't stress enough. It's kind of what John was saying earlier. What I was saying at, you know, at the start of this was like, he really is he, his whole motivation was, hey, I hear there's better jobs. Oh, I, it's weird to say up north, but like, yeah, up north from where he is. But like in the Midwest, I just want a job. I just want better money. And it's just like even his joining of the union if it was almost like there wasn't a whole lot of thought put into it. I just think that's it's hard to say, but like him as a person, like he's just concerned about making money, having a better paying job. But like this whole idea of like the union falling into his lap, he didn't seek that out. You yeah. know what I'm saying? I think, but that's almost just like it. Like I, I sometimes think about myself and how I am with money and work and all that stuff. And it's like, just like, what, what can I get out of this for myself? Like, I don't, I kind of almost don't care about the better good in this organization. It's like, what can I do for me? And I think that was kind of his mentality. He's also no, no offense. He's also not like the smartest guy. He's a little naive about, thing so it i i you know before the movie's over i don't put too much stake in him but it's also in it, it's in 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 his performance it's very he has these almost like childlike wide-eyed like naive view of the world you know what i'm saying so it, it's hard he's to kind got of put, that sort uh, of all shuck smile yes yes no that's no what ma'am. i'm getting at yes yeah. That, yeah like that's what i'm getting at so i don't know i can't really put i i don't know i don't know yeah, even um, when Mary Alice tells him, you know, you're just lonely. That's why you're trying to seduce me right now. You know, it's like a motherly thing to him that his yeah. seduction is so clumsy and, you know, yeah. uh, his reasoning for it completely. I didn't confusing. see that coming at all because they seem completely mismatched in a hundred different ways that and there's <laughs> zero chemistry between them. So sure. it's like, wait, he's is that what the scene's supposed to be about? Is that he's getting a crush on this this woman and she gives such like a. Uh, opaque cold performance too you don't get any sense that like something's heating up between them you know it's it's just true that's true but i think that his kind of lukewarmness as a character confuses things further when you you know you side more with the the earnest weight rafer character his friend who's you know um just wants wants to start, you know, wants to stand up and you know and and, and uh, defend himself, you know, or Moses yeah. Gunn, who's you know, you know, saying, you know, we black workers need, are the ones who need to stick together, and we're the ones who you know we can't rely on when the the unions, you know, this hand the union is holding out for all of us. Those characters at least have a very specific and definite uh, stance on everything, and they have a very specific action. And he almost has no action at all. I was going to kind of let himself be used by different, the two different. Yeah. Just as you talk, I almost feel like the movie would have been, well, I I like this. I'm not going to say it would have been more successful because I, because I do like this movie, but I think maybe what would have satisfied someone like Chris Moore was if the perspective of the movie would pass off occasionally to all those different characters that you said, and we weren't just kind of dependent on this one guy. You know I, I mean? would I so. would be much more satisfied with this movie if it didn't have the like pro union title card at the end. That's like and then he broke the strike and that planted the seed 
for the unions to have power. Literally, he gives that little speech about you can hold a seed in your hand for all eternity, but if you don't plant right. it, it won't grow into tomatoes. And it's like, what the fuck? Like, I would right. if this movie were more about the confusion of it. I'd be more into it. But this movie keeps trying to be a pro-union movie. You know what movie I thought a lot about? Well, obviously, Killer of Sheep. It's hard not to think about Killer of Sheep when you watch this movie. And that's unfair because Killer of Sheep is, is one of my 20 favorite films. It's one of the greatest movies ever made. Uh, it's, so. Yeah, it's phenomenal. And to be, to sort of compare to the nuance and complexity and beauty and tenderness and poetry of killer of sheep to this movie. Yeah, yeah. That's a tough comparison. But I also thought a lot about Fred Wiseman's meat, which is about a meat packing plant in the Midwest. And I, I haven't seen that. I've never seen that before. It's like a lot of Fred Wiseman movies. It's about people sitting around in offices, having endless bureaucratic disputes. And in right. that movie, it's about the unions having a dispute with the management and it, and navigating that dispute and thinking about that movie, which does have a interesting picture of the muddled politics of unions, which are mainly blue collar shaggy guys taking on a explicitly communist or communistic action together and how mm. strange that looks and how sort of confusing it is to have this guy who's a union rep and he's like a mumbly shaggy haired dude going up against management and how like what he's saying is they all know they've got to stick together with it you know um that's a documentary obviously another obvious one to think about is harlan county usa with this mm. that's obviously sure, sure, the great sure. the great union strike documentary although it's not meat packers they're coal miners to just think about but that's a movie that very realistically depicts the hardships of a strike that's dragging on forever and how you reach a certain point of we just got to fucking go back to work. You know? And there's more elements in Harlan County. There's more elements of race in that, too, like weird, confusing things. Like I think about the scene. It's kind of touching on some of the things I've said earlier. Like there's a scene in the movie where there's white workers, there's black workers and then this white worker refers to, you know, this other black worker as the N word. And then this like white woman worker comes to the black guy's defense, but she's like, this N word is more of a man than you. And it's kind of like, whoa, I, <laughs> I see your energy. I see, I, <laughs> I see your attempt, but this is really weird. What you, what, you know, like it, it's kind of, it's kind of, yeah. Yeah. I like that movie, you know, but yeah, it, it's like stuff like that. But happens. that movie has a really clear villain and the way that meat doesn't meat just has like dumb management types. That movie has the, the stripe breaking private, detective i don't even know what is it the fat guy in the police in the pickup truck who shoots at them that yeah. movie has one of the most detestable villains in all of cinema history who you're rooting against and i think for me that's what the meatpacker management is in this movie too i think the villains are that detestable in this and you're so close you've got ted levine as one of the militiamen why not just yeah. go all the way and have ted levine be a full villain yeah. You know, you're there. You got them lined up. That's something we should mention about this movie, too, is it has uh, a few actors in, in early roles like Ted Levine. Alfred, Alfred Woodard. Uh, Dennis Farina. Dennis as Farina. Like the a Chicago staple actors. A sh sure. true, true, yeah, Chicago staple. I think, didn't he? I mean, Fra Frazier's dad is in it. Oh, him. what is his John name? Mahoney. John Mahoney. Yeah, yeah, Mahoney. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what's his face? Um, Dennis Farina. I, I, I Sky's dad and... Um, what's it called <laughs> the john cusack movie um say anything yeah 
Yeah, but yeah, I th- this was only like a couple of years after Thief was made. Like, yeah, Dennis Farina was like, I he I think Thief was where he started. No, yeah, because he he is a former police officer, so he was brought on to kind of be a consultant in Thief. Michael Mann liked him, and that's how he ended up like on screen, you know, uh, for a little bit in Thief, and then he just became this kind of Chicago. St- well, he was always a Chicago guy, but like a Chicago stock actor or early yeah. on, like in the early mid eighties. The yeah, movie this made me he's so, think, he's uh, so Chicago and he's, he's so good Chicago. in this movie. Yeah. He's, no, he's got great. more yeah. this this movie. I think yeah. part of its problems is it has an app, an absence of movie star power to it. I think this would movie would be better with like those three, four, three or four main guys if they had just even character actors as good as Dennis Farina in them. Mm. Basically, yeah. Alfie Woodard is the only interesting actor it's got. Yeah, I didn't have as big a problem with uh, lack of movie stardom and stuff. I think the biggest problem for me is that the movie I kept thinking of during this was uh, Peterloo and why so many films that are about, you know, race and and class uh, conflict that lead to this big political uh, confrontation can't help but be like scenes about that over and over and over again. Look, that's all that they're talking about in every single scene. And it doesn't have those moments. The killer sheep does these poetic moments, these moments of beauty because it has, it's so centrally focused on this one thing. And I thought about why I don't like Peter Lou ever since seeing it. I wondered Marcus, when we were up in Genton, the guy at the video store offered me the free poster. I didn't take it because, you know, (laughs) when I love Mike Lee, because it's just the kind of movie that, uh, it, it's just a subject in general that's really hard to make uh, interesting beyond, you know, just sort of the historical kind of interest yeah. in it. I think the one exception might be Mate One, you know, which came a few years after this. Oh, Matt, yeah, I definitely thought of that too. Yeah. Oh, but yeah. going back to, yeah, Peter, I watched Peter Lou one more time since Tiff, and it's not that I dislike it. I just, this doesn't feel like a Mike Lee movie. Yeah. You didn't, you didn't like, even though it has his actors in it, but you didn't like Maiden Dagenham. With another Sally Hawkins and the uh, they're like uh, uh, a fabrics factory, I think factory or something. I think it's fabrics, isn't it? Is it fabric? I don't fucking remember. Whatever it is, it's made in Dagenham. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, That's not the title of the movie, is it? Yeah, made in Dagenham. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. Oh, when was that made? What? What? That's like just post Happy Go Lucky. It's like she probably made it around the same time as Happy Go Lucky. It's it's a similar. You know, it's what if you put Sally Hawkins in one of these union organizing movies appears right, to be the right, concept. Right. The yeah. answer is she's delightful. That's the huh. answer. <laughs> um, yeah. Why did you want to talk about this for the uh, for the episode? Yeah, I mean, there are a couple. It's the first. Well, first of all, it was outside of like seeing a new release. It's like the first movie that I sat and watched in a long time. Honestly, like the start of the, the, the first year of the pandemic, you know, 2020, I watched all the new release. I watched everything. But then once 2021 came around, I was burnt out of movies. I, I mean, just case in put, well, I, I didn't even do I didn't do my own official end of the year thing of 2021. I, I, I was just so much in television that yeah. when you don't when you stay away from something for the first time and you watch something that's like pretty good you're kind of fixated on it. Like I hadn't watched a movie in a, in a before or after the, the killing floor. So it was kind of like, Oh, this is interesting. And it's also like, I'm a big bill Duke fan. And yeah. this was like, I'm not going to say I, there's other little things of his that I haven't seen, but this is like the only major thing of his that like I hadn't seen. So I just kind of wanted to like talk about it. Delve Dig in, into you know. it. 
yeah, yeah one of his I'm really, I'm really curious about and i don't know how to see it is the martin uh, luther king malcolm x movie that he did i don't know if it was yeah i don't know what but right yeah i've never i don't know how you can see that probably so. on a on a screen of some kind and ju- <laughs> and just like you know the Criterion Channel is just like really cool. Like the Criterion Channel did get me back into watching movies. Um, I don't want to make I don't want to be a commercial for or anything like that. But it's, it's funny like, because on the last you know, two episodes, John is like shilled for things, and I've snapped at him, and now you're doing it, Marcus. Yeah. <laughs> I've been watching all these like Douglas Sirk stuff because I, you know, my mom. I was just gonna say the, the Douglas Sirk. My mom really liked Imitation of Life, and like I, I have some issues issue just one but like i still like douglas Sirk. i like that style and like from the outfits and just the colors i knew like my wife would and she would like my wife hadn't seen any douglas Sirk movies before and now she's seen a handful because she's into that kind of stuff and you know now like her interests being the mother of a of a of a biracial child like Im- imitation of life is something that i think also kind of uh like oh let me check this out you know she's not gonna go through what you know i don't think that stuff is gonna ever happen to her oh well i guess it would be me but um oh. yeah so yeah. <laughs> i'm gonna show up at nathaniel school why'd you have to be my father um <laughs> but you, uh, we should uh, get you no back what's to what your your point. con your conflict with nathaniel is going to be when he wants to play football that's going to be the conflict when, he, <laughs> when he's like i'm gonna be a new york gent when i grow up and uh <laughs> <laughs> he's gonna say i'm not you dad i don't want your life of quitting yeah. being a super all-star high school athlete yeah come up to become a movie nerd talking about douglas sirk i mean probably oh, that'd be a good movie i'll get bill duke <laughs> to direct it yeah this is uh criterion channel school this is also on canopy which i don't mind chilling for because it's all free yeah it's terrific yeah yeah, yeah but like killing floor Johnny Swade, like all these movies are like, oh, I haven't or like I'd never seen before. Like, um, look, fucking Criterion yeah, Channel is yeah, great. That yeah. and the TCM app, yeah. like navigating through it, I, I, navigating through it's a little annoying. You know why Parker but, Parker doesn't ever like going to the Criterion Channel because he's like, I hate this menu interface. Yeah, shit, it is. This shit has no drip. I hate this. But now more than ever, though, Hulu, HBO Max, all peak, oh, fucking Peacock, they all they, they're all not good. And I have a basis and I have a template for it because years ago, Hulu was great. Like Netflix used to be great, but now all these streaming services to get to find stuff is really annoying. Yeah. yeah. Like yeah, you have no, Hulu like is much worse than Criterion Channel. So. Now I, to, to just make things easier, I just do like a crap shoot. And it's like, let's just see if this is all, like I just go straight to the search and if it's not there, then it's not there. Like I just kind of will, you know, Amazon, yeah. I, you know, Amazon, Criterion, you know. I go to the alphabetical listing and I just, pull it down randomly and see what's sure. hanging around in that area. Sure. Um, and then I watched the TCM live. That app is fucking great too. You can, uh, you, not can on that. you can go uh, sleep to, to Elvis movies every single night. If you feel like it, I'm not saying that's what I've been doing for the past, yeah, you know, 16 enough. years, but yeah. Uh, enough shilling Marcus. Thank you for coming on talking to us. Uh, anytime, anytime. You no, know, it's you were, you were our third mic forever. You were the biggest contributor to our website. And uh, if we don't, I realized we barely ever have you on the podcast, certainly not to the extent that we used to, to do stuff with you. So I mean, yeah, I'm, you know. I'm always free. I mean, we already, we are, I mean, I'm not going to say what it is, but we have, we got plans down, down, down the road for, for another one coming up. So aren't we allowed to say what it is? Can we get, Oh, I didn't know. That's how you do. Oh yeah. Hyped 
Yeah, we're going to. Well, not rep, first it's blood. Our, sorry, it's our show. First blood. We decide what's allowed and what's not. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah, we're going to be getting getting into Rambo, which is uh, excited about that. Yeah, um, we're specifically going to yeah read the novel First Blood for its fiftieth anniversary. You're going to come on and talk about that because you're a huge yeah. fan of the Brian Dennehy character, and you want to make sure that he's intact <laughs> from the books. Yes. Yeah, I need to um, I need to go to bat for him. He's misrepresented <laughs> in that movie. He's misunderstood. They just wanted yeah. to keep their town clean. Yeah, that's you know, that's that's fair. When you're a property <laughs> owner, you can decide who's allowed in your town. No, seriously, um, Marcus, it's always great having you on here. And can you yeah, yeah. can you talk about a certain Bill Duke thing you got coming up? Is that something you can announce yet or is it still in the works? What Bill Duke thing? I think I interview uh, him. Is that going to happen? Am oh. I imagining this? No, no, no. He's going to interview Julie Dash. Yeah, is that yes. you, fucking racist? Is that what you're thinking of? I, no, I mean, in the past, I've, I've, I've reached out to try to like get at Bill Duke, but no, it, yeah, I, maybe you're confusing. Yeah, you're confusing with with, with Julie Dash. I don't think he's confusing it with Julie I, I Dash. I was no, I think yeah, I, I don't think, think we want to say that. I think, I think that sounds dream. that sounds even worse. We don't want to. I think say I had that. a dream where you were like telling me you're going to interview Bill Duke, and now I'm thinking it's reality. Yeah, I um, <laughs> she's been giving me the runaround recently. She's been all buddy buddy and the last few times i, I know tried to you reach guys out have been to her she's on, like on social um, media guys have been like yeah. tied that's that's, yeah. too, that's too bad well hopefully that'll work out yeah. try we can reach out to bill duke he seems like he'd be a cool guy to talk i to. have and like i got a, at one point he responded to a dm and then he just and then mandy happened and then he, he didn't care about me anymore he's he's mr popular again so <laughs> it's all yeah uh, i saw a production of the uh the dutchman that he directed here in new york he's been doing oh when, when? directing this is like 10 years ago. I was trying wow. like oh, wow. hell cool. to remember who I saw. Do you remember with. who the actors were? Do you, I, was I, it anyone who? I don't. It's. I wrote about oh. it in my 200 days and 200 movies thing. I mentioned mm-hmm. it. So it must be oh, like okay. 2008, 2009 wow. that I saw it. But that's, I was trying to remember about it. And I looked, I looked that up. So um, it was great. It was a really good. It was a really nice little production. Very small theater, like probably 40 seat theater. Oh, Lowry, wow. wow. Lowry, uh, Greenwich, Greenwich Village. Starred Dooley Hill and Jennifer Mudge. They were great. 2007. I'm going to go that. watch that movie with my wife right now as soon as we're done recording. What, what movie? The Dutchman? Yeah. <laughs> watch that with my with my Caucasian wife. I'm not going to tell you how to live your and life. Just, and just give her weird looks every five minutes. Uh, give her suspicious looks. <laughs> Be like, see? See? And then is- when the movie's over, she's going to offer me an apple very seductively <laughs> uh, let's end on that note thank you for All coming right. on Marcus Penn anytime thank you thanks for having me yeah we'll talk again soon man and we should you and I should talk off the air too cool well I'm not leaving right <laughs> <laughs>